In this interview, I'm joined by Adele Tomlin, Buddhist practitioner, writer, poet, independent scholar-translator of Tibetan Buddhist texts, and founder of DakiniTranslations.com. Adele recalls her upbringing in England, training as a barrister, and work as a strategist in the City of London, before a chance meeting with the 17th Karmapa changed her life forever. Adele traces her beginnings in becoming a Buddhist, her studies of the Tibetan language in Nepal, and thriving in the academic rigor of Tibetology at the University of Hamburg. Adele discusses her published works, shares her research and translation process, and explores the implications of the Shentong versus Rangtong doctrines of emptiness. Adele also expresses her frustration with gatekeeping in academia, reveals the reasons behind her founding of DakiniTranslations.com, and shares her research into the forgotten female mystics of India and Tibet. So without further ado, Adele Tomlin. Adele Tomlin, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> well, I first heard your name from Dr. Ian Baker, who recommended your work, actually, in episode 100 of this podcast, alongside the work of Miranda Shaw and Ulrich mm -hmm. Kral. And he referred in particular in that episode to your what I, what I deduced to be your articles. He didn't name them, but uh, your articles investigating the question of who were the female teachers of famous Mahasiddhas, uh, such as Saraha and uh, Tilopa and so on. Articles like Unsung Heroes, Mothers of Mahamudra, and Source of Saraha's Songs, and mm. Dakini's Truth, Tilopa's Overlooked Female Teachers, and Entering Unconventional Conduct. So he was pointing to that as something, you know, sort of, what was he saying? He was saying, you know, I, I was asking him, what sort of scholarship at this time was, was addressing some of the themes that he was discussing in the interview, and, and he highlighted you there. Um, and he also emphasized in that recommendation that something interesting about your work is you're going back to the source texts and engaging in translations and engaging in an investigation of uh, that level of detail. And he found that to be very noteworthy. So I'm very pleased to be talking with you. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. And, uh, and thanks to Ian Baker, if he was the inspiration for this. And uh, yes, I... Um, those uh, female teachers and lineages uh, Ian and I have spoken about as well, about these kinds of issues. And um, in terms of Miranda Shaw, for example, um, I'm actually quite a big fan of her book, um, even though I wouldn't say in terms of sort of academic scholarship, people would sometimes criticize it. It lacks that sort of thoroughness. Nonetheless, the ideas that she has in that book and the the content of the sort of ideas of trying to bring to life more of these women who've been kind of forgotten about or made invisible, I think is really valuable and still really important. So some of the articles I wrote about that were really also to bring out Miranda Shaw's work because I really believe in also supporting other women, other female scholars and translators whose work has kind of also been overlooked or forgotten about. So I see that also as kind of part of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and I hope we'll be, discuss those themes as as our interview progresses. Mm. First of all, I'm curious though about your background I, to contextualize, you know, your work and and what you're doing. What was your background? What were the what was the what was the context of your upbringing? 
and your early yeah. years? Yeah, so without obviously divulging too much, I, I, I'm from England and uh, I would say I had quite a, a normal sort of background, nothing sort of really exceptional or extraordinary. Um, I had a, you know, I was, I had a happy childhood and um, yeah, I, I would say I was pretty English, <laughs> whatever that means, you know, so um yeah, I don't really know what more to say about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, kind of quite, I would say it's quite ordinary background, really. Two of the tracks that I'd mm -hmm. hope we might discuss a bit. One was your educational journey, uh, which was which has been quite interesting, actually. Um, mm. up uh, in the subjects, but certainly not beginning in the subjects that you're yes. working in now. That's one, one journey. And the other journey, you mentioned, of course, that, uh, offline when we were talking, um, that you're also a practitioner, uh, not just a, a scholar uh, in these things. Mm. I'm also curious about that personal religious journey into yes. contact with the tradition. So I don't know how mm -hmm. best to proceed down those two lines, but I'd like it if we could discuss some of those things. Sure, definitely. Yeah, well, you know, as I said, you know, I'm kind of from a sort of classic, sort of ordinary English background. My family are not Buddhist. Um, they are still not Buddhist. Um, and, and, and that's fine, you know, but, uh, in terms of my own development, um, you know, I was, you know, I, 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 you know, it's quite sort of common or traditional to sort of want to go to university and to improve one's sort of, uh, standing or kind of, you know, get a nice job, you know, all sort of very ordinary, normal things. Right. And so I was good at school. I got really good grades. And so it was you know, considered to be great to go and study law. And I very much kind of went along with that. And, uh, you know, my family were, you know, my parents were happy about that, obviously, because um, people think if you study law and you're a lawyer, you get good salary and status. And, you know, it was all like that. And so then I, I went to study law. I did a law degree and I trained as a barrister <laughs> in London. And, you know, I, I like advocacy. I was very interested in advocacy and helping others. And, um, but the thing is my, my sort of interest in advocacy, you know, because when you start as a barrister, you're sort of starting to represent, you know, criminals and people who are actually quite difficult to relate to and empathize with. And on top of that, um, have done some, maybe some not very nice things as well. And, and you know, it's, it can be quite difficult. And as time went on, after I trained as a barrister, I also started to feel this was not really for me. And it was not really what I felt was my vocation in life. I think it was about a year after I qualified, actually. <laughs> um, and so I just decided to go into the city of London. So, you know, I was surrounded by people who, whose whole idea of success in life is to get a great job, get a lot of money, and have a good time, right? Now, this is a very, this is very common worldwide. I don't think this is particular to, you know, the UK, but, um, you know, I was very much on that kind of path, and I thought, yeah, this is what I want. And, uh, but then, as I, about two or three years into working in the city, I was working as a strategist. I also, felt kind of 
a little bit, not depressed, but I was kind of very disillusioned with it all. I started to sort of see and look at the people around me and think, is this really it? Is this what this is all about? Is this the rest of my life? Just earning money and buying nice things. And it just felt very pointless to me. And so I was starting to study yoga quite a lot. And um, I decided to leave the job and return to university and do a master's in philosophy. Uh, I got very interested in looking at philosophy and, and what was the meaning of life. And, um, and I started to practice yoga a lot. And doing those two things, doing the master's in London on the philosophy, which was Western philosophy at that time, and then doing yoga, I decided to go to India for the first time to study yoga. And, um, and that was when I met my first uh, spiritual teacher and guru, if you like, the, the 17th Karmapa. And I believe it was in India you qualified as a yoga teacher too, mm. is that right? Yeah, so um, I went there to study yoga to qualify as a yoga teacher. I was really trying to just change my whole direction in life um, to being a yoga teacher, to perhaps even being a professor of philosophy. So after I completed the master's, I was kind of set on doing a PhD, you know, and I was really set on that. And then I met, when I went to India to qualify as a yoga teacher, I then met the, the 17th Karmapa. And uh, this was really a, a meeting of, I would say, something like, you know, it's a cliche, but they talk about, you know, previous lives or sort of someone that you, you just meet and you kind of just know that this is someone that I have a very strong connection to and, and, and want to sort of follow. And when I went to India, I was a bit like a backpacker in a way. I was going to study yoga. It's my first time. And my friend and I, on the plane over, I bought this book by Nick Brown, who's a British journalist called The Dance of 17 Lives, which was about the 17th Karmapa and the current one. And I was very uh, fascinated by it, you know, like an outsider on the plane. It was like, wow, you know, this, they say this man is a living Buddha. And I, I had no contact with Tibetan Buddhism prior to this. And I was very fascinated by his story. So I decided after the yoga ashram, course that I was going to go to Dharamsala and I was going to try and meet this um, the Karmapa who was residing there at the time and so that was my plan and um, I did uh, get to meet him in a in a public audience that was the first time I met him and uh, my friend came with me who was also not Buddhist and not interested in Buddhism and uh, so he just, I just met him very briefly at the public audience and he looked straight into my eyes and I just felt my heart burst open and I really felt, wow. And then after the, the audience was very, very quick, you know, on the way back in the taxi, my friend said, oh, that was so boring. What was that all about? And I was like, just completely bowled over. I mean, it was just a completely different experience. And I guess that's the kind of thing they talk about when they talk about karma or they talk about merit is all of a sudden, People have these very different experiences of the same people. Um, but then the, the following day, uh, I was sitting in a cafe on my own in, in McLeod Ganj in Dharamsala and a monk came down to sit next to me. I'd never met him before. And he just said, oh, you know, um, you should go and see the 17th Karmapa. And I said, what do you mean? I've already seen him. And he said, no, you should have a private audience with him. And I was like, 
what? Because I'd never even thought you could get private audiences. I didn't know anything about it. I was a real newbie. And, um, and so then <laughs> he just gave me this phone number. I said, yeah, you can ring up, you can ask for an audience. And, um, and so I did. And uh, because Mick Brown had said in his book, that if you get a chance to take refuge with someone who's a head of a lineage or a very highly realized practitioner like the 17th Karmapa or, or, and so on, you should just go for it. Because if you really feel that level of devotion, if you get that chance, you should, you should do it. So I called this number and I said, you know, actually, I, I would like to meet the 17th Karmapa and I would like to take refuge with him. So <laughs> those words came out of my mouth. And um, next thing you know, so uh, the first day, the day I was due there, some people had said, oh, no, no, it won't be you. It won't be on your own. And uh, I turned up and I was on my own. And um, and I went in and, and uh, at that time, I don't speak any Tibetan, but you know, he didn't actually give the refuge vow. So he, he just said he couldn't do it that day and you have to come back. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and uh, because my flight was due back to London and, and I thought, but I can't come back. I, I, you know, and then I thought, so what am I gonna do? And then I thought, well, I have to change the flight, obviously. <laughs> so I changed the flight and, um, and then the next time I went again, I was on my own and he gave me the refuge vow. And it was a very beautiful, it was very simple and quite short, but it, I was on my own with him, with his translator. And um, I would say that this moment in my life was a kind of pivotal moment because from that moment on, when I went back to London, I just decided that this was going to be my life from now on. So I was going to return to India. I was going to study Tibetan. I was going to go and see him teach. And so from that very short uh, moment in time, um, what some people may have regarded as really relatively nothing um, for me was a really pivotal moment. And the fact that I had that opportunity to take refuge with him and he was the first Lama I'd ever met and he was the first Lama I ever got refuge vows from. And I understood what refuge was at that time because I'd read Mick Brown's book. <laughs> So thanks, Mick Brown, if you're if you're watching. <laughs> but um, but it but it was just um, a coming together of causes and conditions that then uh, completely led me to completely abandon my life in London at that time, which on the outside people would have thought was very successful. I had a very wealthy boyfriend in the city of London. I was a kind of a, a strategist, or you know, but but you know, I mean, obviously I was doing a, a master's in philosophy as well. But you know, I was just completely bored with it all so anyway <laughs> how did people react in your life when you when you announced that and made such a drastic change yes well um surprised i think i mean fortunately my my uh, family you know are, are, are just very liberal you know they generally support what i do they very rarely say oh no 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 that's not okay um so in that respect i'm, I'm very fortunate you know, my family don't dictate to me, you know, what to do. Um, and so from their side, there was no sort of objection. But obviously, you know, I did have a relationship and that ended. And I decided to, um, you know, start going to India and started to study Tibetan. Right. So, okay, you right away associated the language learning the language with your your religious conversion 
So if we were to go back to <laughs> yeah. Adele at that moment, that pivotal moment in London about to set out mm. to India, of mm. course, there are many ways to learn or some ways, anyway, several ways to learn the Tibetan language. Um, yeah. So how did you go around, go about selecting? Well, first of all, why did you think that was so important to do right at the beginning? And why, uh, how did you go about selecting how to do that? And then mm -hmm. what, what happened next? Well, um, I guess also I wanted to be in, back in India, back in Asia as well, because I wanted to spend some time with um, this teacher, the Kamapa. So that was also very much motivating me to get back there because I wanted to be around him. I wanted to go to his teachings. I wanted to see him again. Yeah, I was completely hooked into his, what they call like the hook of compassion or the hook of sort of, uh, you know, connection from him from a past life is that, you know, you're kind of just, this is like something you have to do. And so then I realized that the way I would also become closer to the guru would be obviously if I could speak his language because he was then teaching in Tibetan. He was not, he didn't know any English at that time. And most of the teachings are also given in Tibetan. And I just felt that to be able to get that direct and to be able to speak to him directly in his language or in the language of the, 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 the Tibetan Buddhist Dharma anyway, is just so important because it's so much more direct, right? Because I don't have to then go through a second person. So that was my prime motivating factor in this. I was not setting out to be a translator. I was just setting out to become closer to the teacher and closer to the actual Dharma, the text, you know? So that's why I wanted to study the language. And how did I go about looking? Well, I, I sort of looked at, you know, which were the sort of scores and, um, and you know there were there were there were quite a few then, but I I did decide to start in Nepal at Rangjung Yeshe Institute, and uh, and the reason for that was that it's actually quite pricey, <laughs> and uh, most people you know will say that it's actually quite pricey. It really is kind of quite quite pricey, I think you know compared to other options. But the reason I started with them is because they have sort of Western teachers who. Um, Who's, who can really teach Westerners or sort of non-Tibetans the language in a sort of, I felt that was kind of a good entrance into it rather than going directly into a sort of, um, with a Tibetan teacher or native Tibetan speakers. And in a way it was, it was very good. It kind of sets you up very nicely um, with that foundation to then go off and, and study in sort of maybe not so exclusive or pricey places, but just kind of, um, with, with, with native Tibetans more, you know. So that's how I chose that because of the, because they're very much geared to, to foreigners at that, at that institute. I know that they offer a range of programs there um, <laughs> you know, from bachelors. Well, I suppose from a module study up to bachelors and beyond masters and so on, different masters they offer there. What sort of course of study did you pursue? Did you focus mainly on the language or did you also do Buddhist studies uh, credits and so on? It was uh, Tibetan language, uh, classical and colloquial. And um, at that stage, that was what I was set on studying because I felt that by doing that first, then I could approach the philosophy through the Tibetan text. And that's what I wanted to do. So at that point, I wasn't studying Buddhist philosophy. But at the same time, when I was not in Nepal, when I was in India, I was attending teachings of the, the 17th Karmapa regularly. He was giving like these kind of public teachings to quite small groups of foreigners then who would go to his monastery in Dharamsala. And, 
and th and that and at that time he was very accessible actually it was easy to get private audiences it was easy to sort of be in a teaching with sort of maybe 40 50 other people and just watching him teach so it was a really kind of amazing time um and i felt very fortunate to be there um so I was kind of studying Buddhist philosophy at the same time, but just not within the Rangjung Yeshe Institute itself. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of year, years were we talking here? That was around uh, 2000. So I started studying Tibetan around 2006, 2007. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of when I started going to India and Nepal. And so, yeah, that was, that was great. Of course, we're going to be talking about your translations uh, yes, your translation okay. work. So that's that's one of the reasons I'm really curious about your language yeah. learning journey with Tibetan. Um, mm. So how did you find it when you when you first first contact with the language, um, and you know what what were your initial impressions, and how did you find it? Did you find it accessible? Um, or <laughs> difficult? Some people yeah. say it's difficult. Other people say they. Oh, feel it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, one thing I would say is um, it's. It depends, again, because um, I remember when I was at Rangjin yesterday and a lot of people really struggle with it. And, um, and I mean, I found it quite easy. Uh, I, I sort of picked it up. I remember sort of words just, it was just like, I didn't have to study or revise hard. I was just like, it just came very naturally. And I, I, I sort of, and I, again, I felt that this was a karmic thing. I felt this was a previous uh, type life thing um, because other people really struggle with it. They spend years with it and they, it's really difficult. And for me, you know, I was actually kind of became quite a lazy student in a way because it was just so natural. I just, and I loved it. It was very, I don't know. I just felt like I'd done it before. <laughs> You've said that a few times now, the, the sense <laughs> of past life connection with the car mapper yeah. and... And now you've brought it up again in the context of language. Mm. On your site, you also mentioned that um, some Jonang Lamas have suggested that you're a re the reincarnation of uh, Kunga Trinley Wangmo, um, uh -huh. 16th, 17th century um, figure. Yeah, I mean, some Lamas have said this to me, not just Jonang Lamas, you know, when I was doing some translation of Kala Chakra or uh you know and and sometimes you know i mean i generally always take that with a bit of a pinch of salt i i really don't um i i i don't know who i was in a past life but generally i you know this is this life now and i sort of feel that sometimes with these things um they can give people a little bit of an ego trip. And I, I feel like sometimes when people say these things, sometimes it is good to sort of take it a bit with a pinch of salt because you don't want it to become like a sort of ego trip and a kind of barrier actually, because um, this can happen very easily. This is a big pitfall actually, that uh, it, we, one has to really look out for actually, that um, even if I were, uh, I think it's probably better not to sort of really think too much about it, you know? <laughs> mm. Yes, that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. there, well, no, it is very interesting. Are there any, um, perhaps this is a teacher-student private sort of matter, but did the 70th Kamapa, has he ever intimated to you any past life connection or anything of that nature? It's just interesting to me because you've brought it up mm. a couple of times and um it seems to this this sort of 
karmic connections seem to be actually quite crucial to your relationship to the 17th Karmapa and, and also it seems now to your study of the Tibetan language. Yeah, I mean, people sometimes who are not Buddhist have some issue or difficulty understanding karma or the notion of karma, right? And they, especially non-Buddhists, I think they really see this as kind of a belief and a religious belief. I mean, I must say, I don't regard uh, Tibetan Buddhism as a religion, even though other people might regard it as that. I regard this as a very sophisticated, highly advanced sort of form of practice, if you like, mind training practice, which um, is about coming to a much fuller awakened level of being and state, you know, of a Buddha, you know, or awakening, which Buddha is, means awakened one, right? So I, I with, the, with the sort of karma, this can easily get sort of misunderstood as a kind of a religious belief, but it really, in a way, it's quite simple, you know, it's like, for example, you know, in a family, there can be quite different children, right? So one child could be like an absolute genius on the piano and everyone else in the family has no interest in music or, or you know, they're not as talented. Um, and for example, in my own family, I'm the only one who's interested in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, really. So um, now those things, you know, science uh, struggles to explain. Um, and in fact, they cannot explain that. They cannot explain this because you grew up in the same family, you grew up with a similar kind of environment, similar kind of influences. So for me, as the child the prodigy on the piano is, I think, very good evidence of previous lives and, and, and karma, because what other kind of explanation would there be for that? I mean, they say genetics, but what does that mean, you know? So when I talk about it, I'm talking about it in that sense, that there are some things that are quite clearly in our lives just seem to be resonating or sort of making fitting or we find much easier than others. And um, this is sort of, you know, that if you believe in the sort of continuity of consciousness or you believe that there is the potential at least for previous lives with different bodies, um, then, that makes a lot more sense in a way. Why would someone find it so easy to, to learn Tibetan compared to someone else who's really struggling with it? So that's kind of what I mean there when I say that. It's more like um, my friend, when she met the 17 Kamapa, didn't feel anything really, you know? She thought it was kind of boring. And, you know, whereas I was just completely overwhelmed and touched and just very moved by his what I felt was a, an embodiment of great compassion and uh, someone who's living a very different life to the vast majority of people so <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah very interesting other other aside from your connection with 17th Kamapa and your mm -hmm. natural affinity with the Tibetan language or relatively speaking anyway I'm sure you also had to work <laughs> it um uh, yeah I did I did yeah actually, yeah. yeah of course um, is, are there any other uh, experiences that um, give you that same sense? Uh, certain other meetings, perhaps, or uh, other paths you've taken since the point we've been discussing? Sorry, um, I, I'm not quite unsure what you're saying. Can you say that again? <laughs> I'm wondering if, in addition to your relationship with 17th Kamapa, that, that special connection, which has that sense of, you know, karmic connection, and your affinity with the Tibetan language, which mm -hmm. also, you said, has a sense of, you know, karmic connection to it. 
Um, yeah. And I know you're not making too much of that, but are there are there other <laughs> other yeah. other um, if we take that karmic connection thread of which now there yeah. are, in which now there are strung two beads, are there any other beads of um, that would fit onto that thread? For example, uh, people you've met, yes. or texts you selected. I suddenly I saw this text and I thought I must 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 translate this, or I encountered this teaching and I thought this teaching is is like it's got landing strip on it. I have to deal with this teaching, <laughs> or or this location. I must be at this location. Things of that nature. Uh, the answer, of course, could be no. Well, um, the thing is with with these things, often they happen quite naturally. I find so you know you're not kind of looking out. It's kind of they just these things happen along your way. And so um, I, after I've been studying Tibetan in India and after I'd sort of been attending quite a lot of teachings with the Kamapa, I decided that it would be good and give me a bit more substance potentially to go and study Tibetology in, as a master's degree in, in Europe, which I did in Hamburg. And the thing with that is that, um, why Hamburg? Well, you know, Hamburg, <laughs> I mean, it's not uh, sort of the first place that springs to mind, but the reason why I chose Hamburg was certainly within Europe. It's considered to be one of the best uh, places, uh, the high, one of the top places actually to study Tibetology. And uh, they did an international master's and it's in English as well. So I decided to go and do that and use the Tibetan skills that I'd already got in India in Nepal and um, studying all the teachings there to get the master's. And so from the master's degree, um, I contacted a couple of people. I asked a professor called Matthew Kapsang, who's a very big Buddhist studies scholar. I don't know if you're, you're probably aware of his work, right? And he suggested, you know, the, this uh, small text by Karanata's commentary on the Heart Sutra. And I was very interested in all the emptiness, the philosophy on emptiness. And I was very interested in the Heart Sutra and so this seemed like a really good text to do. And, um, and so I, I did that, that was my thesis. And I did a, a, new trans, a brand new translation of it, a critical edition, they call it. And it's very dry and boring. I mean, academic is not like in the India or Nepal, you're going to these teachings and empowerments and it's very sort of exotic and these Tibetan lamas and, you know, you've got all that Vajrayana bliss and everything, and then you go into Hamburg, and it's a very, you know, traditional university department, and it's kind of like you feel the life energy of it is just completely sucked out of it, you know. <laughs> and uh, so the first three months, I really struggled with that, and I really felt this is way too academic, this is way too dry. Um, but then, as time went on, I began to sort of see and understand the importance, actually, if you're going to do any kind of research or translation, within uh, Tibetan Buddhism or within the Buddha Dharma, let's say, it actually does require some rigor and some, some training and some discipline. It, it really isn't. I mean, the problem is now when you've had that background and you see the translations that are out there where people have not had that and they've not gone through that kind of process of training and rigor, you kind of become more critical because you're actually starting to understand that actually this is not such a great translation because they haven't gone into the source text that much. They haven't really looked at sort of different versions of the same text. They haven't really sourced anything properly. And sure, when translations first started, maybe 30, 40 years ago, people 
didn't do that, you know, and we, we shouldn't expect them necessarily to be able to do that. But now I think it really is important, you know, and, and now I, I, I sort of feel that actually um, there's a lot of stuff out there that probably is not that reliable, actually. And I, I've read people's translations, I won't say who, but I'm just sort of like, uh, this doesn't actually bear that much resemblance to the Tibetan or the meaning, and people are using these texts. So, <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to mention names, obviously, but, you know, it's just um, that was the usefulness of the academic background and training is because they take that sort of thing really seriously, maybe too seriously. <laughs> you know, they're kind of too sort of academic and dry about it all. But what I felt after doing that was that somehow I was going to try and bring these two worlds together more, you know, that the academics see themselves as kind of very separate from all this practitioner nonsense, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, they're practitioners, but we're scholars, you know, and I sort of feel, felt that there is absolutely a place for a scholar who's also a practitioner, and even though academics might not sort of see that as relevant, I actually think it's really important that um, when I read a text, especially if, a, if it's a Vajrayana text or it's about a practice or something um, connected to practice, you know, for example, I've read, I've read uh, some research some people have done on uh, consort practice, right? And as I read it, I was like, <laughs> I mean, it's just so obvious they've never ever done consort practice. And I, I just sort of feel that it's like almost reading someone describing the taste of chocolate, you know, it's like he's never tasted it. It's like, you can write all you like about the taste of chocolate, but you know, at some point you really do have to taste it because when you write about the taste of chocolate and you haven't tasted it, it actually is quite obvious that you haven't actually to someone who has tasted chocolate. That's that's how it, that's how I, that's how it felt to me. So I felt that, you know, it's the same with the academics and the scholars who, who haven't got necessarily the empowerment, they haven't necessarily got the lineage, they haven't even got a connection to the author or the teacher, but they go ahead and they translate these, these beautiful profound texts and they don't think that's important. But I honestly do think it is. And I honestly think that there's something a little bit lacking if you don't have this, especially Vajrayana takes, if you don't really have that blessing or lineage or whatever one you call it, of a sort of, yeah, and almost like a, re a reverence uh, for the text, for its content. And, you know, if you're going to write about practice, even consort practice of Karma Mudra, I mean, come on. I mean, this is a highly secretive, practice it's really gen generally only done in a one-on-one -on -one sort of teacher-student relation and if you are going to dare to write about that well you know I mean come on at least having actually tasted that or had that experience I think this is really really important you know, so mm, very interesting so yes. the, the Taranata commentary sorry in terms of the text I, I forgot to say that was so then after I finished the masters I this text um was was you know it, it, I got a very a good result I got a first class result for it and I then asked the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives who I'd been studying Tibetan with as well if they would publish this as a book and they said yes and so again you know that was then published as a book and so from that then the sort of world of publishing and writing and translation started really opening up for me and that's when I started to realize that I now had a more of a platform to do other work and other translation. And because I'd basically done the Taranata text, um, 
then I got more involved with Taranatu, who's like a Jonang lineage, and also the Kala Chakra, because Taranatu's um, the Kala Chakra master. He's a Jonang lineage master. And um, so then I got more interested in that. But always, right from the, you know, always I was very much connected to Kagyu. So I always felt that my heart was very much with Kagyu and with the Kamapa. And so even when I was doing Kala Chakra, for example, I got very interested in how the Kamapas were connected to Kala Chakra and how the Kagyu were connected to Kala Chakra. And so, and that isn't spoken about that much, you know, it's not really, Kala Chakra is not really associated with the, the Kagyu or the Kamapas, right? It's normally very much associated with the Dalai Lama and the Gelukpa, right? Yeah, that's very interesting. And your thesis, as you pointed out, was published mm -hmm. in 2017 by Library of Tibetan Works and Archives as Taranatha's yeah. Commentary on the Heart Sutra with a foreword by Professor Matthew Capstein, as who you mentioned there. I want, you know, you're speaking there, you're pointing to um, scholarly rigor and philology, the importance of that, and also the importance, uh, in your view, of the practitioner's connection to the material. And so I'm wondering if you might address those themes in Taranatha's commentary on the Heart Sutra, because of course, mm -hmm. I presume from if I've, if I've understood you correctly, in translating that, you were also learning how to approach a critical edition, how to um, include those more scholarly philological mm -hmm. aspects, as well as, you know, producing the translation. It was, um, uh, you know, doing your master's. So I'm wondering if you if you might orient us a bit with that text and how, you know, what, what challenges did you face with it? in, uh, you know, philologically speaking, or as a practitioner, and how did you begin to work out your own way of balancing those two perspectives? Yeah, I mean, philologically, <laughs> that's quite a difficult way to say, but I actually, um, it wasn't as difficult as some texts, like, for example, some texts have like 20 different editions of the same text. Unfortunately, Taranasa's text is not not like that. So it was it was a manageable sort of editions it wasn't a big number of editions and so the critical edition of comparing those and contrasting them was not that difficult but where where i would say it was more difficult but also very interesting was the philosophical content and um but also the if you like the historical or intellectual import of that text which was actually at that time in that time of history um as you, you probably are aware, you know, um, the fifth Dalai Lama and the Gelugpa pretty much took over Tibet. They they basically took over a whole load of monasteries, Jonang, Kagyu. They took a lot of texts and sealed them up. They were never sort of spoken about or taught again. I mean, this is this is this is a widely known thing now. But um, and the, so the Jonang and the Shemtong view, which is the empty of other view, which Taranata's commentary is very much uh, teaching. It's a, it's a, essentially a Shentong, empty of other commentary on the Heart Sutra, which even now is kind of a little bit sort of controversial, let's say, and uh, some people would adamantly say, absolutely not, it's not possible uh, for the Heart Sutra, which is the second wheel turning the Dharma to be talking about the sort of ultimate view, the empty of other view or the Buddha nature view, whatever you want to call that. So. I can imagine at the time when Taranatha wrote this, this probably would have been incredibly provocative. <laughs> and uh, when you're sort of also in a, in a sort of environment where, you know, people are 
very, very set on the sort of the other ranked on you, the empty self view, and they are not so accepting of this kind of other type of view, which is more focusing on the ultimate nature, the Buddha nature. To say that, you know, the classic Panya Paramita text of the heart sutra is actually teaching that Shentang view. Uh, I mean, it probably, some people were deeply provoked by it. And uh, they do say that the, the takeover of Tibet um, by the, the Mongolian army, obviously, with, with the, with the, at the helm, you know, the Dalai Lama, um, was not motivated philosophically, that it was a power, power thing. But nonetheless, uh, there are things which I brought out in the introduction, which suggest that there was actually, it was connected also to this kind of philosophical difference and the fact that, you know, predominantly Kagyu, Nyingma, and obviously Jonai were very much um, proponents of the Shentong view and of this empty of other views. So um, I think there was that, there was part of it. It was definitely, and, and why would they, you know, why would all these texts be, taken and sealed and bound up and people told never to study or, or read them again you know I mean there has to be a reason for that right so that's not just a political thing that's an intellectual that's an intellectual thing going on there I think when it was published you know even then I, I remember a Tibetan said to me oh so you're a Shen Pongpa now are you you're an empty of other person are you now and 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 this person was a predominantly a Gilead person and even that, I sort of said, well, actually, um, <laughs> I wouldn't classify myself as that, although I do actually kind of really understand that view. And I think it's a really, I, I, I kind of would say I followed that view, but the book itself was really representing what Taranata said. And so what I did is I tried to represent as accurately as possible what Taranata wrote. And, but the fact that, you know, there was this assumption as well that because I translated the text by Taranasi that was on the empty of other view, that somehow automatically made me, you know, a supporter of that it was also very interesting, I thought, you know, because it, it doesn't necessarily follow, right, that, um, you know, one is also following the same view. Although in my case, it is true. I, I, I do sort of generally follow and accept the Shenton view, yeah. So. Yeah, it's very fascinating what you're saying. I wonder if it might be possible to lay out a little bit the difference between the Shentong, Rangtong, perhaps with the lay. Why is it important? And how does Taranata read the Shentong from the Heart mm. Sutra? How, how does, how does uh, what, what's his main line? What are his main lines of arguments? Perhaps that's too, too much to ask you, but um, yeah. I'd be very interesting. If, it'd be very interesting if you could. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I also think that other people who are not so familiar with that vocabulary also interested to hear that, right? Um, this is one of the common questions I also get asked, you know, can you just say in a nutshell what the difference is between Rangtong and Shentong? And actually, was it Einstein who said, <laughs> if you can't explain, what is it? If you can't explain something difficult in a simple way, I can't remember the exact quote, but basically I think it was just saying that, you know, Ideally, one should really be able to explain even quite complex ideas in a simple in, in a simple way, right? Um, now, on the one hand, the Shenton view is actually very very simple. Um, what it's saying is is that if you, for example, the the the, the Rangtong, the empty of other view, is saying that all the phenomena around us that is a, a sort of conditional phenomena, let's say, or impermanent phenomena including our bodies, including our minds, including sorry, our consciousness, let's say, or including our notions of self, 
are all empty of any kind of inherent existence. They, they, they don't have any kind of solid existence. So tables, chairs, other people, these are kind of, we just take them as being very solid and very separate from us. But if we analyze and break it down, we break it down in terms of sight or hearing or, or um, consciousness, or, you know, now, of course, we have quantum physics can do this for us, but, you know, we can break down a table now and say, yeah, it's actually just atoms and what are atoms they're predominant in space. So, um, and obviously the, the views on emptiness were all done before quantum physics and before um, there was this kind of proof of that, right? But they were saying kind of the same thing that the empty of other view, the Rankine view is saying, these objects that you think are so solid and so real and so separate are actually predominantly space and they are, we are actually not that separate from them. So that, and, and, and they don't exist inherently. They're not this kind of solid thing. And so that's the Rankine view, that's the empty of other view. And that's a very important philosophical view on the path to understanding the view or the, the view of emptiness, let's say. So now the, the Shenton people were saying, okay, we, we accept that. 100%, uh, we're not disagreeing with that, but there's something missing here that, well, what's left after that then? Because if everything is empty of inherent existence, well, what about all these Buddha qualities that are spoken about in the Buddha, Buddha nature sutras? You know, when you attain awakening about all these Buddha, Buddhahood qualities of love, compassion, wisdom, omniscience, um, well, what, what's all, what's all, where's all that? Because there are many sutras which talk about these qualities and these are like innate qualities of the nature of mind, right? Um, so the Shenton people felt that this, this just saying that all phenomena, conditioned phenomena are empty of inherent existence doesn't really address those other sutras which are talking about the sort of ultimate nature of mind and those incredible vast amazing qualities of, of having a fully aware, open mind um, of a Buddha, let's say. So Shantani then said, well, yes, um, Shantani, empty of other, what is, so emptiness is basically all these kind of conditioned phenomena. That is what is the emptiness of inherent existence there. But Buddha nature or the ultimate nature or the nature of mind, is not empty of inherent existence. That, that, that is there. So they're saying that's not empty of inherent itself. And, that, and you know, some of the Jonang even went so far as to say that's permanent, <laughs> which obviously, you know, troubled a lot of uh, the Rangtong people. Um, the word permanent really shook people. But what Del Popa and the Jonang and the great Kagyu Lamas were saying as well, you know, like the third Karmapa, when we say permanent, it's like this is kind of beyond conditioned phenomena. So the nature of mind or Buddha nature is something that is unconditioned and it's fundamentally present in, in the nature of mind. And, and this is what awakening or becoming a Buddha involves. It invo involves revealing that essence, if you like, or revealing that nature of mind, which is always present. So that is a Shenton view. So the Shenton view is saying, you know, yes, everything around us, that is all empty of inherent existence. But in terms of the essence or nature of mind or those great Buddha qualities, which, you know, that's the whole point of awakening, um, that is not empty of inherent existence. That is something that is kind of eternally present, actually. <laughs> and that's the sort of thing when they say we are, all, we are all actually already Buddhas, 
it's again quite a provocative statement but what it's trying to say is uh, of course we're not buddhas because we have a lot of uh, afflictions and delusions and a sense of self and other but um we're already buddhas means that we all have within us that potential which is eternally present which is the sort of buddha nature qualities within the mind so that i guess that wasn't really a nutshell but hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of the, the difference between a shentong view and an empty of other views that is that was that clear <laughs> yes very much so thank you and <laughs> two questions i think arise from that what yes. are the implications then of mm. that view um of that difference in view and mm. also how does taranata approach the heart sutra mm. in that in that shentong way yes well i won't I could say, oh, go buy the book, but <laughs> but it's yeah. I mean, obviously, people obviously I go into a lot of detail in the book, but but you know, seriously, um, what is the practical import? Let's say, is that what you're asking? So, what what is the point of knowing the difference? Is this just a philosophical, intellectual, you know, interesting thing? But what 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 is the actual point? Is that kind of what it is like? What is the practical import of knowing the difference between? Rangtong and Shentong, and how would that impact someone's life? Is is that the kind of question that you're uh, getting at there? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's one way of putting it. I think I, my oh. register was a little a little less uh, <laughs> a little less impetuous. What's the point? I don't. Yeah. Know. But I mean, yeah. no, I really mean, of course, yeah. Well, what I mean is, what are the implications in terms of yeah. uh, of, of that difference of view? Not only for the, for the practitioner, but I mean, does does this affect yeah. how other teachings are presented or? Does it affect practice? Does it affect realization? What and okay, sure. And, and downstream, for the present day, you know, so you had your Galupa associate say to you, "Oh, you're a Shentong person now." What does that mean, other than mm. having that particular philosoph philosophical view? How might that affect you exactly. as a practitioner? Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I I get what you're saying. I mean, I'm I'm just sort of. Um, as a, as a practitioner, the thing with um, sort of having more of a Shenton view, let's say, is your sort of, I would say it's kind of a, a really great counterbalance to, in a way, some sort of nihilism. Um, now, Buddha, you know, he taught the two extremes, you know, you've got nihilism and then you've got sort of asserting reality as existing, right? So the middle way is is a very thin line between those. But, but the thing is, um, I would say the Shenton's kind of really trying to focus on the really positive qualities that are available within our minds at any time of the day. So it's important to understand that yes, there is impermanence, there is death, that everything is decaying, that all of these conditioned things are on their way out, including our bodies, including all those people who are attached to, you know. But on the other hand, you know, and the Buddha himself taught this in, in these sort of Buddha nature sutras, um, it is also really important to remember the Buddha nature qualities because this is the counterbalance to getting too sort of nihilistic and sort of, you know, too much suffering and too much nothing exists. It can get a little bit, you know, you forget. But right now even you know within the the mind there are always these kind of qualities present and in a way this can be very uplifting and it's very useful to remember that that within all, within all of us there's that seed there's that potential but there's also those qualities which we can call upon at 
any time in any situation. So for example, the whole notion of generating bodhicitta or compassion for beings, you know, I mean, doing that on a daily basis, you know, that should really, you know, what you're trying to do is bring out those qualities of the sort of essence of mind, which is, has that quality of concern, of care, of love, of compassion, of wisdom. And you're training your mind to sort of do that every day because you're trying to remember those qualities. And so this is the thing, and this is why I would say maybe someone who's also got more of a, a sort of sense of Shintong and a more a sense of the Buddha nature, um, you know, when things are quite tough or getting quite bad, you know, we can we can go into that sort of really deep, profound resource of the mind and remember, you know, for example, loneliness is a huge problem, I think, in, um, well, especially Western societies, but, you know, I think everywhere with the advent of social media and, you know, people feel often very disconnected from people, right? And so when people feel lonely, they get quite depressed and, um, and I think, you know, again, this is where the Buddha nature uh, is actually very, very useful because you're, you know, with the bodhicitta and the Buddha nature kind of qualities is, that, you know, you can go outside and you can see there are other human beings around, there are animals around. And in India, this is obviously, it's, it's quite easy to do that. You know, it's, it's very much on show that, you know, are experiencing perhaps lots of suffering and are kind of in a much worse situation than you. And, you know, and you can also show love and compassion to people in very small ways. But I think just remembering those qualities of the mind, which is the Shentong view, is, is, is very useful in that respect on a very practical level. And you don't need to be a Buddhist to do it. Of course, you could be. It's just really sort of remembering that, um, we all have sort of really these amazing potentials and abilities to have extremely uh, amazing states of mind and and um, care and love and compassion for people and and uh, and that and it's kind of really just bringing that out you know when when stuff starts getting quite tough <laughs> as it does you know yeah thank you that's uh, Taranata's commentary on the Heart Sutra published by Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. Yeah, thanks for going into that a bit. Um, yeah, thanks for going into that a bit. It's, it's interesting to um, uh, you know, hear your reflections on the sorts of themes that that, that text brought you into contact with very deeply. Yeah. Uh, of course, since then. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was going to say, actually, I probably didn't say much about what Taranata said, though, which I, I could probably say a, a little bit on. So Taranata was really talking about how there were certain parts of the Heart Sutra which were definitely pointing to these sort of Buddha nature qualities or the ultimate nature of mind. So he would he would just sort of kind of go through the text and sort of say, well, this, you know, shows that that is talking about Buddha nature, that is talking about, you know, um, the nature of mind, but without having the text in front of me. And it was quite a while ago since I did. <laughs> I don't know if I could go into too much detail about it, but um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, thank you. Thank you anyway for what you said. Um, of course, since then, that was some years ago, you've, you've mm. you know, published some more books, as you, as you pointed out, and mm. you've also started the website dakinitranslations.com. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we could talk about that, in, unless there are any, or, and indeed any other um, important intellectual or spiritual waypoints up to that point. But 
I'm curious about dakinitranslations.com. Can you mm. uh, share a little bit the story behind that website and what it's all yeah. about? Yes. Um, well, the thing is, um, because I think it's, it was it was several reasons, and I, I do mention this in my introduction to the website, which is also on YouTube. But you know, again, I think that the there was a combination of factors. You know, I um, you know I I'd had a sort of quite a I guess you'd call it a negative experience with um, you know a teacher, and I I sort of you know spoke about it you know I told people about it and um and what happened as a result of that you know was actually in some ways quite difficult because I I um you know you you kind of get a bit sort of shunned <laughs> uh by by quite a lot of people in the community um not everyone not everyone um but it, it it's you know and people can read about this on the website as well I have written about it but you know so that was one factor that um I started to find that it, it, because of that experience and because I've spoken about it, that it was not so easy anymore for me to be, um, you know, people just wouldn't reply to my emails or it would be very difficult to get things published. Um, but it was, it was never explicit, but, you know, funding was removed and all, all sorts of things like that. And I realized that the, all of a sudden these barriers were coming up um, and it was very much coinciding with that. So. <laughs> um, you know, although it wasn't always explicit, I think it was actually quite obvious that it was connected to that. And uh, as I say, people who I'd known who were previously very friendly and open before just kind of completely just cut 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 me off in a way. And um, and that was very difficult. So that was one aspect. But the other aspect is I sort of also felt that the whole world of sort of publishing in in Buddha Dharma, the translations was actually quite male dominated actually and uh, I know I wasn't alone in that of course there are, there are female academics who have managed to get professorships even and, and they still will say that you know their work is often overlooked it's not included or um, in, in collections and so on and and so I felt also this sort of feeling that you know it was much more difficult as a woman as a translator particularly to to get the work out there. And um, there was a lot of gatekeepers to these projects, you know, these kind of, who are predominantly men and who, uh, you know, and they, the projects themselves also, they, they sort of seem to have become huge, you know, I mean, I won't name names, but there are these projects that have, you know, huge kind of committees, editorial committees, and just masses of people a lot of funding and I also felt that in some ways because of my own experience when I put forward uh, some research I did myself went through review processes which by the end of it not much really changed that some of this was actually a real waste of time actually and I was it was very frustrating to have to face all these kind of gatekeepers and barriers and then you know, a lot of talk about translation, you have all these meetings over people discussing how to translate a word and end up talking about it for a month. I mean, you know, it's like, come on, you know, this is, you know, Marpa, the great translator, obviously never had to have this kind of level of analysis. Now, I understand it's good, like as an academic myself, who's been in that world, that is important. But I think if you have an academic background and you have a record of high quality research and, and, and scholarship, and you know how to do that, then I really don't think all that editorial committees and people 
talking about how to translate bodhicitta, <laughs> you know, for, for two weeks or whatever is, 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 is actually necessary. So this was the other sort of real thing, which is I, I really wanted to sort of kind of bypass all of that, subvert all of that and make uh, the research and the translations available without having to go through all of that kind of process, but making sure it was reasonably high academic standard. But the other thing was, is I wanted it to also be an example of a woman who had set up a translation website, who had done it off her own initiative. And um, because if you look at the other translations websites that are out there, they are predominantly, well, I think all of them are run and set up by, by men. Yeah. So there was an element of sort of showing that it's possible a woman can also do this. So there was that element to it. But there was also, I wanted to make Dharma translation and research just more attractive. <laughs> I wanted to produce something which was not just for academics or practitioners, but was kind of hitting that kind of standard, let's say, of a sort of more academic approach, but which at the same time was speaking out more to a general audience of practitioners or people who were just more interested in it in a more general way and present really interesting ideas that has come out of research that were just completely lost on a dusty shelf in a PhD thesis somewhere, bringing that out into the public sphere so that people could actually read that in a sort of very accessible way, in an attractive way, with images, with music, because one of the sort of signature pieces, if you like, of the Dakini translations website, which people love, I mean, they say, they tell me they love this, like it kind of started out as a little bit slightly a little bit of a joke and then I, I realized actually it's people love it but also music um, when combined with philosophy it's it really opens up people's hearts and emotions and actually that's kind of what dharma is supposed to do as well right so I really felt that by putting music there it was, a, it was another way to sort of try and get across what this article or this research or this text was about in a sort of non-written or non-verbal way, right? It's kind of, and actually this became very, very popular. People really enjoyed that aspect of it. And so I just carried on doing it because I love music. You see, I'm, I'm a huge music fan. I, I play the piano and the guitar. You know, I love music basically. And I, I always, um, I just think, yeah, it's a very different medium to sort of touch people and to reach people, right? And so that was the other sort of driving factor of thekinitranslations.com is I just wanted to make the Dharma not seem like some dusty, dry academic thing, but sort of kind of retain that sort of standard wherever possible, but also, you know, to, as I say, give it that sort of female sort of base to it or edge to it and the sort of something a little bit more um, artistic, let's say, or musical to it. So yeah, those, those are the sort of, and, and obviously to make it free. So the other thing is it's completely free. You don't have to pay for anything. And um, I also believe this is important when it comes to Dharma. I don't ask for any money. I don't sell anything. Um, it's all basically based on people's donations. If they want to donate, they can donate. And I also think that changes the energy of something quite a lot not selling things you know sticking and dharma because you know it's considered generally not that great to profit from dharma i mean financial profit so it's, it's considered 
not to be something really you should try to do is to get financial profit from the Dharma. Of, of course, covering your costs or whatever, that's different. Translators have to live and, you know, have to eat. But, you know, I think it's just this idea that it's a kind of a commercial thing. It's a profit thing. And so I think the thing is when, when people sell Dharma texts, it changes the energy quite a bit in a way. And, um, and that's why I think, for example, other, you know, translation websites like Lotsawa House or Dharma eBooks, which is the 17th Dharmapas, um publications website, those, all those texts are free on there. And I think this explains why they are so popular and they're so well thought of is because they are not selling things to people. And it's, it's all, you know, you can donate if you want, but if you don't want, it's fine. You know, this, this, this is all available to you for free. Yeah, very cool indeed. You know, I think anyone who visits DickinyTranslations.com will straight away be struck, at least I was, by mm -hmm. how much there is on there. There's a lot on there. And so, <laughs> yeah. you yes. know, it's a lot of work. So I was curious <laughs> um, how you decide, how you select which works to translate, and if you could perhaps pull back the curtain a little bit on your process, um, both in terms of the research yes. involved and maybe give us a, a sort of a an outsider's view of your shoulder sketch of, of how you'd approach the translation process itself uh, in, in broad terms. Yes, well, um, yes, it, it is a lot of a lot of work. I, I absolutely uh, will say that. Um, but and in a way, that's kind of like you say, it's one of how it's become very well known is, is people say it's just prolific, right? Because um, it's just one person. And, and in that respect, you know, in some ways, I'm 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 happy about that because um, you know the more content, the better. But I, I also think that I mean, I'm kind of I have a huge passion for Dharma, and so when I, it's like I almost feel like I should basically do something every single day uh, on a, a translation or some research, and I should just write something every day. And I, I guess you could almost call it like an obsession. <laughs> But it's, 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 I see it more as a passion because I, I am very fortunate because I, I've built up this kind of background and skill set and I, I live in India and I study here, but I have the time and the interest and also that skill set to actually do this. Now, it is not easy to do it. It requires a lot of hours and a lot of, but without the passion for it, it's not possible. You can't produce that sort of thing every day or every other day if you just don't have that kind of interest and passion for it. And I think that is why that's how I approach it. So it's kind of um, as because I follow obviously the 17th Kamapa, so I, I like to write his teachings because what I feel with the 17th, so this is what I'm working on at the moment, but so when, when someone like you is teaching, you know, I like to write it up and I like to provide sources and footnotes and images and go off maybe and different tangents from those teachings, which he hasn't covered, which then I find quite interesting. Like, for example, he mentioned this nun who was a Buddhist, a student of the Buddha, who is one of the Buddha's best students. And so then I decided on my own to go off and do some more research on her. And I, I, I just thought, wow, you know, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to share this with people because they may also not be aware of her. So that's kind of, sometimes it's very organic. It's not like a sort of, because although I do get asked to do work and I do get offers, you know, can you do this? Can you, you know, generally speaking, 
I'm not a kind of paid to work translator. I don't, it's much more organic. So if I see something that I think that's really interesting, I have a passion for, I will just do it. And uh, if someone gives a teaching on a deity or something that I have the empowerment for, but that's the other thing. If you're talking about deities or Vajrayana or anything like that, or even, even sort of philosophical takes, if I don't have the transmission or the empowerment, or I don't have that connection to that particular deity or takes, then I, I won't do it. So I've been asked sort of, for example, to do things for money. And I just said no, because either I don't have the connection with that teacher, I don't have any kind of devotion or connection or interest in that lineage or teacher, or I just don't have the empowerment for that deity, or I'm not really connected. And, and I think that's the difference between the kind of work that I'm doing, the transition work that I'm doing, is someone who's what maybe might be called a professional translator, is they they will basically do work that they get paid to do. And if someone says, can you translate this text? I'll give you this amount for it. They say, yes. And so that is not how I pick text or translate. So for me, it's really from the heart. It's from, am I really interested in this? Is this something I think other people will find really interested in it? And then I just do it, I publish it. And from that, if people donate from that, that's great. If they don't, they don't. But it's so far, you know, it seems to be really working. It's very successful because I, I believe that sometimes when you do things that are sort of more from your heart or more sort of passion or you kind of have a more, um, you know, you're not doing it for money, it create, it's a kind of a different energy to it in a way. It's sort of, it's quite different from someone who's been said, oh, I'll do this text, I'll pay you this amount. And they just produce it like a sort of, like almost like a worker, right? You're just not, you know, and um so that that's the process. So it, it, it's in this situation, like recently, for example, it's very organic. Um, but also with the, the Seventy Four teachings, sometimes the summaries and the write-ups on the sort of websites, you know, they're kind of summaries, and they miss out lots of really interesting stuff. So I, I guess you could call I'm a bit of a Dharma geek or something. I'm a bit of a geek about these things, you know. I'm, and again, it's that academic background. It's just I really feel. Maybe not everyone, but certainly for me, I sort of really feel that when the 17th Karmapa gives a really great teaching and he's done a lot of research on it and he's gone into that level of detail um, to present it, uh, I sort of feel it's really useful and important to have that in full and to sort of really not have things missing or, um, I mean, as again, it's kind of like maybe a bit of a, I'm a bit of a geek about that, but you know, I, I think other people are too. <laughs> so it's just sort of, um, yeah, I just sort of feel that it's almost like an act of preservation in those cases. Um, but other ways, you know, for example, if I get an empowerment from a teacher and they teach a text and I just thought, wow, that's a really interesting text. I'll just go and find the text in Tibetan and I'll read it and I'll just do a translation of it because I have the transmission and I got the empowerment and I'll just do it and I won't be asked to do it and I'll just do it um, because I sort of feel I'm really interested in that text but also I know other people who took that teaching and that empowerment are probably really interested in it too um, and that's how it works so it's, it's very organic like that um, yeah very cool um, <laughs> I'd like to ask you a bit about perhaps we can finish with I mean we could go on and on you know I've, um, yeah. I think it's so interesting what what, what you're doing but but uh 
perhaps to finish, we could finish where we started. Yeah. And, you know, Ian Baker in that episode 100 of this mm -hmm. podcast had, had highlighted in particular your articles that investigated some of these female teachers of the famous Mahasiddhas mm -hmm. who are not, not, not as known as well. Right. And so a couple of the articles, the Unsung Heroes article and the Dakini's Truth article are a couple of the ones that yeah. I think he was thinking of when he was saying that. Yes. Perhaps you could say a little something about those figures yeah. and that category of figure and your interest in uh, investigating them. Yes. Well, um, first of all, I mean, Ian has been very supportive and encouraging of the work ever since BikiniTranslations.com was set up. And, you know, I really am grateful to him for that. You know, he was kind of right there from the beginning in a way, as soon, you know, as soon as I started writing and publishing on there. And, um, and, I, and so I'm very grateful that he, he mentions it. But, but on the other hand, you know, he's, he's very genuine. He really does, he tells me, you know, he really, really enjoys that sort of work. And he, he, want, he really enjoys the fact that these issues are being brought up and being written about. So I'm very grateful to Ian for, his interest and his support on this. And, um, and as I said, especially as I faced quite a lot of obstacles as well, you know, when it was being set up and, you know, people went out of their way to either ignore it or kind of, you know, uh, diminish it or whatever, you know. Um, and so to have uh, someone like that who's very supportive, it's, it's really helpful. And, um, but yeah, so with these sorts of articles, um, I thought it was quite a natural place to put these sorts of articles on Zakini translations because the whole thing is a female founded website. It's kind of a woman who's trying to sort of bypass all that sort of, all those obstacles and barriers. And, and, um, and it just made sense to have research and articles on women like that, who Miranda Shaw, for example, who, by the way, um, when again, when when I started writing about this and I started quoting some of her work, and even I was a little bit sort of you know challenging some of the things she'd written. I mean, she wrote me a beautiful long email. She just said she loves the website. She's absolutely you know, and I, I was so it was really supportive, you know. And I, I was I was kind of again I was a little bit taken aback, you know, because I was kind of like a big fan of her book and. And, uh, and so she wrote me this beautiful long email about how much she, she appreciated the work, the site, and the fact that these ideas, again, were, were being brought into the, the public domain. Because the thing with Miranda's book is it's, it's an excellent book in terms of the ideas and looking at these female lineage teachers within Vajrayana, within Tantric Buddhism, who were actually sometimes teachers of these, you know, really famous male yogis like Tilopa and Naropa. And, um, but you know, very rarely depicted in any of the paintings or the sort of you know refuge trees. And so I also wanted to sort of remember Miranda's work, bring out that work, bring out the ideas that she, but add to that, you know, so add some more content to it, bring in some of the sort of you know my own translational research on it, and just sort of yeah like build on it I suppose and and she was very she was very happy she was very happy about that um she very much yeah and so that also kind of spurred me on as well so when you know she was encouraging and saying this is great I'm really happy you're doing this um that made me think yeah this is something I need to do more so 
for example, the latest post that I've done, it's very short, it's not going into a huge amount of detail, but it's on a nun who is one of the Buddha's best students. And that's not, she's not mentioned in Miranda Shaw's book, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, it's the similar, again, it's a similar sort of kind of, if you like, agenda, if you call it, it's, 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 again, it's just trying to point it out more. I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a website, it's called, um, uh, congratulations, you have an other all-male panel. Have you heard of this? I've heard of, yes, I have, and Manol, right, isn't it the thing? Something like that. But anyway, it's it's kind of, so on the one hand, I think it's really important to keep a sense of humour, and it's really important to sort of, especially in the Vajrayana, you know, there should always be this sense of, you know, the view, never take anything too seriously. But... Um, but you know with that sort of humorous side to it but also to kind of really just remind people like like the sort of congratulations you've got an all-male panel i mean the great thing about that who who said that was like it's actually quite funny you know obviously they did it to be funny but it's actually making a really serious point as well right so they get people to send in the the, the photos of these all-male panels which have absolutely no women on them even though there's lots of women in the field who can speak on them and um and in a way, I kind of see it a little bit like that. So I'm kind of, you know, whenever and wherever possible, when women are mentioned and they're mentioned very fleetingly, or but actually they have very interesting lives and they were very important in a way, I just sort of almost deliberately say, okay, now we're going to look at this woman because, you know, she's been ignored basically and um, that's not okay. But I, I try to do it in a sort of, yeah, kind of a fun way as well. And I sometimes put this, as I say, music choices that, you know, for example, I did one on this Dulananda, who's like a very badly behaved man, who the Buddha um, apparently made a lot of denials because she was so badly behaved. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't aware of her until the 17th come up and mentioned her. And, you know, and there's this in the text, you know, she's, it says, you know, she's really like, you know, got this huge bottom and, and things like that, you know. so. Of course, you know, it's not relevant, but it's good to bring these things out, that this is the kind of things that are said and written about. But, um, but you know, to keep the humor side, you know, I did use Queen's um, Big Bottom Girls Make the World Go Round song because, because I also think, you know, as a sort of, if you're practicing Dharma and you're doing Vajrana, of course, you always have to maintain a certain sense of lightness to things. So that's that's how I think you know, that's, that's how I see it. So a serious message there, but also, you know, it's not sort of too awfully serious, you know, so it's kind of like, I try and balance it with sort of with things like that, which I think is the all-male panel site does really well. Yeah, that's very funny. I hadn't thought of it like that before, these lineage trees. Uh, you're, you're, <laughs> seems to be, you're kind of saying that we could put those lineage trees on this uh, congratulations, you've got an all-male panel site. Yes, well, I have sent, um, I mean, I have sent things to the all-male panel website because, um, I mean, unfortunately, within Tibetan Buddhism, it is still very male-dominated. I mean, many meetings, um, you won't find a woman on the panel, especially if it's like a religious sort of meeting, and it's like, it's predominantly monks, but it is changing, and uh, I think that, you know, for example, Tibetans I know here, women I know here who I think more and more women are sort of 
starting to notice these things well yeah hang on a second like there was a there's no women on that panel and uh it's just kind of strange it's starting to look strange now to them as well because there are women in the community who, who could speak on those panels and um so i think yeah things are changing but i also think it's good not to um yeah to remember the view as well um and not not sort of get too sort of serious or solid about it because and I think that's the key in a way and that's that's not always so easy to do <laughs> you know to sort of walk that line of you know making a serious point but at the same time you're maintaining the view in some way <laughs> that, that's a line you also walk a little bit with the name Dickini translations isn't it I've, mm. I've uh, seen you talk about that that there's a bit of humor in that too uh, perhaps you could uh, by way of closing, point point to that how you, yeah. how that name itself actually has this kind of humor in it too. Yes, I mean because you know obviously on the one hand I wanted to get across you know this is very female the bikini is like a sort of female name and especially more and more these days it's kind of thrown around a lot you know you're a bikini she's a bikini and often it is like um, I think this uh, Kandra Rinpoche mentions and she, she's got a YouTube video and she says what is a Kandra bikini you know, she says, and actually, it's not like this kind of pretty young woman who is 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 like easy to get on with and, and popular. You know, actually, bikinis are sometimes really difficult. I mean, challenging, difficult. You know, they are kind of right up there. You know, as a mirror, sort of telling you the sort of situation or being very honest or direct with wisdom, right? So that many people find bikinis really awful. <laughs> You know, they are not, uh, but the thing is nowadays, of course, you know, it gets sort of, as she said, you know, people get some llamas say, oh, you know, she's young and pretty, she's a bikini, and people love it, and they're sort of like, yeah, bikini. So there's an element that I, I noticed this myself, and, but, and I wanted it to be a female name, but I also was kind of, yeah, trying to keep it sort of like as a, a funny thing, as a humorous thing, because, um, I, of course, I, I'm British, right? So maybe not everyone's going to get that sort of subtle, <laughs> sort of irony uh, side to it. And so, yeah, straight away people thought, oh, Adele is saying she's a bikini. <laughs> and actually, that was kind of the point in a way. It was kind of like I was kind of playing with that and sort of saying, actually, I'm not saying I'm a bikini, but in a way, isn't it kind of funny that that's the assumption? that I'm using that word to apply to myself because obviously we're in a culture now where everyone's applying this word to themselves and everyone's kind of happy when someone says they're a bikini and it's often based on really superficial things like you know how young they are how pretty they are and I, I just felt it was kind of being ironic it was also being serious at the same time it, it, it is a female website but I also that maybe it's my British sense of humor or something but I, I just felt that it was kind of a very um What's the word? Like, um, I'm just trying to show that there's something funny about saying, you know, this is this is this Dakini translation. So every time someone has to say that website name, it's like, oh yeah, it's on Dakini translations, or it's you know, it's 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 kind of playing with it in a bit. I'm trying to be a bit playful. So you know, when they quote it or they cite it, you know, they have to say Dakini translations and. And I, I just, I don't know why, I just thought that was kind of also quite funny. 
because every time they, they talk about it or quote it, they have to say bikini translations. And, and, and I'm, I'm sure some people really don't like that. <laughs> and I'm not doing it because I don't want people to like it. I just think there's something a little bit funny and humorous about it that is hopefully saying lots of things at the same time, which, you know, has that kind of ironic, ironic side to it as well. I don't know. Do you, do you get that? Do you get this sort of slightly ironic side to it? <laughs> Yeah, well, my website's called Guru Viking for expressing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm I'm not I'm not foreign to the idea of a slightly tongue in cheek, but also serious <laughs> website. Yeah, I'm I'm very aware of that, and I'm also aware of the occasional um, way it rubs people up the wrong way, and uh, they say, "Oh, you're a guru, are you?" I've had people say that to me too, but uh, it's very yeah. rare. I think most people get get the kind of playfulness from of the of my website title name. Um, yes, but I certainly found it to be playful. Yeah, you found it to be playful. Yeah, I didn't sort of instantly think, oh, you know, I, I felt there was a playfulness to it. But you yeah. know, that that's the thing. Bikinis, and I mean, and that's the irony is that bikinis are supposed to be playful. So, um, although I wasn't saying it's a bikini or I'm a bikini, I was also thinking, but but on the other hand, but if you were, <laughs> if I were. Yes, exactly. I would hope and expect that if a bikini were running a translation website, that it would be very playful and as well. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, Adele, this has been so fascinating, learning about your life and work at bikinitranslation.com. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.